Welcome to Room to Grow with your ally, Chad, a podcast where a white privileged male, me, invites people to teach him as much as they can about the sensitive subjects that are prominent in today's society, such as racism, women's rights, addiction, and mental health. This podcast is for open-minded people who want the information that is out there but don't know where to look. My name is Chad Moores. Join me and let's learn and grow together. Hello and welcome back to Room to Grow with your ally, Chad. In this episode, we are joined by a close and personal friend of mine. She is an osteopathic and family medicine doctor in Kennebunk, Maine. Within the last few years, she started her own group called Graceful Recovery. She has been practicing medicine for over 20 years after getting her degree at Nova Southwestern University of Osteopathic Medicine. She specializes in addiction medicine and has been helping people with addiction for many years. Please welcome my friend, Dr. Meredith Norris. Thanks so much, Chad. You're welcome. Was that was that a good intro? Did that work well? Uh, yeah, it, it's Nova Southeastern, but Southwestern's fun too. <laughs> well, I did try I'm not, out. I'm not worried. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so before we jump in, uh, I, I want to take a moment to mention how, how we met and how that pertains to my podcast, <laughs> how that pertains to my podcast and, and my intro. Uh, go ahead. Uh, you have the floor for this. Oh, you, you want me to talk about yeah, it? Yeah, I do. So um, there was uh, uh, Chad's wife, who's also a good friend, um, Tammy, was in medical school. And there was a family medicine mixer happening where the students who possibly were interested in family medicine could meet with physicians who were practicing that and you know it was a crazy time the 2016 election had happened i was kind of in a mood and they were describing how they just got married and i said something like are are you in med school too and he said well no uh, i'm actually you know a cna and and it's a little bit and I went on this kind of tear. Plus he was describing some sort of not very micro racial stuff that had happened on their honeymoon. And in my mind, I was demonstrating alliance with Tammy in all that she was going to deal with as a physician, as a person of color, da, 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 da. But unfortunately the way, and like in the fullness of time, I realized that I sounded like a crazy person. But at the time, I felt like it was something we were all kind of understanding, but it, it just, it was nuts. So, so what happened was I was sharing my point of view, my lens as a woman physician married to a man and how there are certain assumptions people will make that, that the man is the doctor and that people felt like they could say things that were completely racist about his wife to Chad because of the assumption of their shared white male privilege. And I kept as I was doing this, gesturing at Chad to punctuate white male privilege. And again, like it's one of those things where you assume people can see your heart and see your intention. Um, and they really can't. And neither of these poor people had met me before. And so I was just like this, this like Valkyrie showing up from the, <laughs> the horizon and swooping in and, you know, basically bashing Chad, although at the time I didn't feel like I was bashing Chad. I felt I was just sort of using him as the 
illustrative example of what we were talking about. And, um, and, and, and then we became friends. The wife worked with me a number of times. I actually hooded her. I was there at their baby shower, da, 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 da. So, so clearly we've all moved on, but it's become a running gag, not only with us, but with another med student I had, who I told the story, who was a white man. And the day that he matched to his residency, he texted me, looks like the white male privilege paid off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's actually taken on a life of its own. It really has. I mean, well, and the, the reason for this podcast almost happened pre pretty much because of me being a white privileged male and, and, and being called that by you. Just it, it, to me, I don't even my version of the story is a little different because it, you know, uh, it, Tammy and I were, were across the way in the room and we could see you talking to somebody. I'd, we'd never met you at the time, but Tammy was like, oh, she came and talked to one of our classes and she's really, really cool. And I'd love to go up and, and talk to her a little bit. And she was <laughs> so excited about talking to you. And oh, so even better. And so this is how this is how it happened in my head. It must be an, a, a balance between the two. But we got we walk up there and you guys are already talking about stuff and you just go and a white privileged male like literally as I'm walking towards. I know that's not what happened, but that's how it felt to me. Well, that, that I mean, what probably happened was there may have been some overlap in conversation because I definitely knew about stuff on the honeymoon and whatever. Mm -hmm. So like. But I don't. I think you maybe weren't part of the whole thing, so that might have been what it was. Kind of surfing along on on the 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 wave of my indignation. Yeah, I um, was just like I hadn't even introduced myself, and you were like this white privileged male. I'm like, whoa, you're my yeah. <laughs> whoa! And then I remember we we got in the car and we're driving away, and I'm like, well, that was interesting. And and then like a month or so later, or however long it was, Tammy's like, you are not going to believe who I'm doing a. Uh, who I'm doing a, a, a rotation with. And I was like, who? And she was just like the white privileged male woman. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. good luck. I'm like, she's nuts. And like, I'm not joking. We yeah, thought that. She's loaded for bear. She's like, like your head down. Oh my Don't gosh. And then, moves. and then you ended up being <laughs> one of our favorite people. And it, so it's just, it's absolutely hilarious how first impressions can, can completely change. Well, what was funny was I remember talking to you guys at the mixer and really liking you and feeling yeah. a big connection, which is probably <laughs> yeah. why I felt like, well, they're cool. They're not going to care if I like take a few completely undeserved swings at this poor guy who yeah. just showed up. Yeah. And then when, when she came to rotate with me, I remember kind of liking her, but I remember not really connecting that she was the person. I really enjoyed her immediately quite a bit. And then she's like, actually, I'm kind of, a little disappointed you don't remember and it's like oh no oh no oh no yeah i was kind of nuts <laughs> yeah she waited until like the end of that to really like tell yeah, you because like, she was like weeks in yeah she was nervous to tell you so uh <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's okay we, we we love you so much and we love that story so so much we tell it quite often so uh please tell us your I couldn't be prouder <laughs> <laughs> So if you don't mind, uh, please tell us your journey uh, from getting into med school and ending up in addiction medicine. So because, of course, you didn't go. I mean, maybe you maybe you did, but I can't imagine that you went in thinking that medical school was what you wanted to do. I mean, uh, addiction medicine is what you right, wanted to right. do. What brought you into the field? Was there like a specific patient that really brought you there or patient zero, if you will? Mm -hmm. Actually, it, it was truly um, 
I worked in mental health before medical school for about six years. I did mm -hmm. a, a variety of things in med, um, before that in kind of the D.C. area. And at the time, crack was a very big deal. I, I, I had a lot of friends in recovery. My roommate was in recovery. So I, I already kind of had a background in the particular model of recovery that they did, which was 12 step. But um, I also just knew a lot of, you know, for one, professionally and personally encountered a lot of people in recovery. Um, in a way that probably normalized it more than it was for a lot of people at the time, which was in the early 90s. And um, in the later 90s, of course, I was in med school. And really, I would attribute it to my philosophical bent of being a rural family physician. I did uh, a residency that was literally called the Rural Family Medicine Residency. And something that took my husband, who does a lot of things as well, as you know, but was trained mm -hmm. as an internal medicine guy, um, rural family medicine is not family medicine done in a rural area. It is a particular philosophy of kind of being ready to be a utility infielder and whatever. Like I knew a PA who was kind of the guy and learned how to treat hepatitis, which at the time, I mean, the treatment now is pretty user friendly, but it certainly wasn't. I mean, it was interferon infusions and stuff at that time, but no one was doing it. And so he started doing it. And, and that was kind of how you approach things in rural family medicine and that I was, um, I did a lot of pain management because, and I still do. Uh, I did obstetrics. I took care of newborns. I did osteopathic manipulation. Of course, I worked in the emergency department and, you know, there was a unifying thread throughout all of that, which was that there were people who had substance use disorder and the, the more 30,000 feet lens of family medicine, and this is something that people seem not to notice, is that family medicine is really about forming relationships and it's about, you know, kind of bearing witness and walking along with people while they decide what their priorities are in terms of their health. Like, it, you're not going to do well in family medicine if your mission is that you're going to find everything someone's doing wrong and then browbeat them into changing their ways. It, mm -hmm. It's more a matter of like, well, what are you, what are you unhappy about? Okay. What are some things that might contribute to that? What are some things I can do? What are some things you can do? And, um, I already worked in mental health and I was already very familiar with how much stigma comes to people with mental health crises, comes to people with substance use disorder. And this is not a group of people that were scary to me because I, I knew a great many people socially who, you know, had so, but I was very aware that because I was comfortable, didn't mean other people were comfortable. So I became very kind of protective of this uh, particular subset of the population. And when a colleague started doing medication assisted recovery, um, which is medicine, you know, me medications that you can use to help people with their recovery, um, I was very interested, number one, because I trusted him and because he's just like the definition of a reasonable man, like in the court cases where they say, well, what would a reasonable person do? He would be the reasonable person. And and he was doing this. And I was really, I was really very um, intrigued by what I found most compelling was, you know, there's a lot of opinions when it comes to drug treatment. And it's funny because like, like I always say when I lecture to the med school, no one thinks they know how to cure cancer, but everybody thinks they know how to treat substance use disorder. Like I could go to 7-Eleven and somebody, you know, ringing out my my Doritos would think that they knew exactly, they, they had the hot take that was as valuable as mine on recovery. And um, 
I was really interested in the statistic that for certain types of substance use disorder, the relapse rate is over 90% if people are not on medication to support their recovery. Oh, okay. And, and I mean, so like, it's not a matter of some people do better with this blood pressure medicine and some people do better with this one. It's just like, okay, the people who aren't using meds relapse like over 90% of the time. And, and the people using meds relapse also, but bear in mind when we're talking about opioids, any relapse can mean death. Mm -hmm. especially if you've been abstinent for a while and then you use and your tolerance is different. I mean, there's a lot of very Cory Monteith, you know, there, there's a lot of high profile celebrities who died that way that they were doing okay. And then they had a slip. And so the stakes are extremely high on relapse. It's not like, it's not like you have your blood pressure out of control for a few days. And so you change meds, like it's a big deal. And, and at that time, the acceptance for any kind of, working with medication or working with recovery in general was really not normalized at all. I mean, it still isn't in a lot of ways, but it's much more normalized and mainstream than it had been. And at that time it really wasn't. Um, and uh, I remember I would tell people if I had a condition that could kill me and there was one treatment that had a better than 90% success uh, relapse rate, I would want the one that had a better success rate and it kind of like like one of my mantras for being a physician because people say like what's your opinion about the covid vaccine or what's your opinion about and i'll always say i'm only allowed to have an opinion when there's no data when there's data i'm supposed to be working according to the data my my, my opinion is i'm in the mood for chocolate ice cream today not pistachio that's that's the role of opinion uh, and there may be informed opinion as a result of 20 years of clinical work, but when there's actual information out there, it's malpractice not to apply that information. That is and, and really so, interesting. You know, yeah, coupling that with my, as you know, my, um, my somewhat activist um, lens and being the champion of the underdog, uh, you know, the, the, the stigma that I encountered as somebody taking care of these people, um, you know, not, not even just the people in recovery, but I, I tended to have a kind of nutty population because I created a safe space for a lot of people, you know? Um, and so like, there was a certain persona of what a Norris patient was if they walked into the, op into the, you know, obstetrics department, if they walked, you know, I, I delivered babies when the moms were uh, in recovery. And that was something people really weren't doing in a conscious way. And, and the amount of stigma that, mm -hmm. that I observed happening really heightened my ability or my desire to really be an advocate um, because people may not always listen to someone of a, you know, who presents a certain way, but, you know, I'm a white middle-aged woman who's a doctor and I can weaponize that and I can be a more effective advocate in a lot of ways uh, than people not in, not with those privileges and not with those. So, you know, I would see somebody who just had a baby and she was sober and doing okay, but she was on medication. So the baby needed to be monitored and life flight would show up to swipe the baby. Like they were pulling it out of a burning building and not out of the, her mother's arms. Like, and, and all these, you know, that's a, a bigger thing, but then there's all these little, it's so nice that you work with those people, you know, like I'm, I'm at a leper colony or something. And, and, and just this, there's a language that's othering, um, 
around people who are in recovery that, that doesn't really play the same role. I mean, no one who works at a dialysis center is told it's so great that you work with those people. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and I mean, I, I could keep, the, the, so the story continued. Um, a lot of what I really like doing in that small town community kind of stopped happening. Um, mm -hmm. I won't get too into the weeds, but at the same time I was getting divorced. Uh, my son needed a better um, educational environment because of some needs he had. So the whole package led to, I would move to Southern Maine and so would my family um, and so did their father. And so when I got down here, it was different because I was no longer having to just assess what can I do because there's, you know, there, it was weird to me there, like you could get into a specialist like next week, whereas it, I was used to it being three months. Um, and the practice was very limited for people like me because the assumption was family medicine didn't know how to do anything. And so I was really lensing, well, okay, it's not what do I have to do and what is their community need for, but what do I like to do and what am I good at? And uh, a recruiter asked me and I said, well, I like, you know, honestly, I like working with people in recovery. Um, I like working with teenagers also. Um, I like working with people who have food issues. And she's like, okay, so basically you like working with the people no one else wants to work with. And I'm kind of going, well, yeah, I, I guess if you lens it that way, but like, I, I really wasn't thinking of it as some kind of Mother Teresa situation. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking this is a really, a really great way to practice. And also you see people get better in a pretty rapid way. I mean, like not sobriety and into sobriety in a pretty short amount of time, people are feeling a lot better in, in a way that you don't see when people are getting their diabetes under control. Like it's, it's more of an uphill climb. And, um, and at that time I encountered somebody who was starting a program, an intensive outpatient program that they were going to use medication, which was actually pretty new at that time that usually therapy over here, medication over here. And there was sort of an antagonism and he was looking for a medical director and I was like, okay. And I kind of, and then I went on to do that for nine years in addition to all the other things, my, my, all the other evolution of my practice. And, and, you know, you wind up doing one thing and then someone else says, Hey, do you want to work at this methadone clinic? And I'm a big believer in just saying yes to things. Um, so when I was asked to cover a freestanding detox center in Portland, cause the doctor was going to be going on a six week kind of hike in Spain or something, I said, okay. And then when I was going to do some moonlighting at the inpatient detox affiliated with a hospital, I said, okay. And, and that is sort of really broadened. And, and that in turn put me in touch with a lot of people who do activism, who do harm reduction. And, uh, and, and so the, the many, the many, um, many limbs of this have all become very much part of my life. And, um, and, and, and part of my, uh, my passion work, I would say, as mm. well as my professional work. Wow. It's, I, I just love the the way that you just like explained all of that in such a way that it did just change. Like it, it's not the answer that I was expecting when when when, you know, people ask you, you know, why do you do this or how do you why do you like this so much? It was such a, a, a even better answer than what I could have expected. And I really, I just love <laughs> well, that. I well, love, right. I love the way that you, how you see yourself and how you see that, you, how you've done this and, and why you've done this. It's a, it's, it's very, very cool. 
So um, I know um, something that I wanted to, to mention and, and, and excuse me for mentioning it if you didn't want to, but I thought this was a really, really cool uh, uh, thing that I found out about you is that I know that you send some uh, send home with some of your patients um, sanitized needles and like just like um, sometimes. Yeah, just I, uh, you know, so just knowing that this is what they're going to do, um, you know, something like that, because I also know that uh, I've heard that when people are are outside your car asking for money you actually have like little little packets of of stuff that you can give like like food and even tampons and stuff like that to people that are yeah in... uh, I, especially in the winter because it's really it's you know it, i just kind of have hardwired it into what i do like and and i don't go by the particular corner as much where i would have a bag ready for people who are like um, looking for money, I, I, but I would have like a gallon size Ziploc bag, which is also useful if mm-hmm. you're not homed. Um, sometimes I'd put clean needles in and like wet wipes. And um, I would also get like on Amazon, a container of um, like men's mittens in bulk. So I'd throw in a thing of mittens and, and you know, stuff like that. Um, bond, gold bond powder. A lot of it is that, you know, when I worked at the detox center, and still continue, you know, to have affiliation. I know people who work there. I know people who have been used there. I admire their their work very much. And so I had a lot of that stuff together and then it got weird around COVID. So now suddenly I had all this stuff in my, in my office that I really didn't have a good way to give out. And I happened to know somebody who was working for outreach. And I was like, hey, do you want like a whole buttload of this stuff? And then she said, sure, you know, and then then another time we were decluttering and we had some extra pillows. So I called her up and said, you want some pillows? And and but that, again, is really part of the fundamentals of family medicine, which is that it's relationship building. Um, the, the reason you can give medical advice is not that you're a doctor, because as we've seen in the past few years, everybody thinks that they can just do a lit search and now they're an infectious disease expert or whatever. But what you can do is if they trust you, um, they'll listen to you. And so that's a whole lot of relationship building. And in turn, I have relationships with the people who, if I suddenly find myself in possession of a whole big packet of, of sanitized wipes, she knows where to find, where to find a home for it. If somebody, the police chief and I have a great relationship in my community and he'll often just buttonhole me at ace hardware and say i have a lady who da 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 she's been using this and i'll say give her my number and and so you know it's very much a part of community building which has always been a big part of family medicine so so to me yeah when when people say how did you get into this i I think they're they're waiting for me to say you know my father's an alcoholic which he's not or or whatever or my best friend died of an overdose and and that is how a lot of people get involved that that really, to me, it was kind of out of momentum of of what I perceived to be my particular talents and the particular needs of the community and and my my fundamental belief in the inherent worth and dignity of every human and that these are the people who really need some help um, and are often lovely. But, you know, what the way I often explain it to, to med students or whatever is that when someone is active in their use, it's like they turn into a werewolf. You know, they they're fundamentally doing things they would have never have done they're behaving in ways they're saying things they never would have done 
and then it's like they turn back into a human and they're in the zoo next to a, a dead giraffe going oh my god and you can imagine but i mean you can imagine the remorse you can imagine how like that's traumatic and that's there's a lot of trauma involved with that and 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 then that people are going to be met with so much shame and so much punishment and so much um in many ways the um law enforcement adjusted to the idea of treatment rather than punishment way before social work did which i thought was really interesting and not what i expected um but it, i guess it i mean it makes like the police got on board with look we can't just keep arresting people we need to find a way to to look at the root of the problem and the root of the problem is that there's not access to treatment and there's not access to a lot of things that they need and so just arresting people is not the solution mm -hmm. and um yeah and, and if you think about it the people who go into case management um or and this isn't everybody and obviously i'm making huge generalizations but kind of by definition we have to make people who go into nursing, people who go into social work are in a different lens than people who go into law enforcement and that the law enforcement people kind of want to solve the problem. Um, and they have baggage, but it's different baggage than the social work people do. And I was really shocked that I had to explain to therapists and caseworkers and DHS workers that like, no, this is good that people are on methadone or that they're on Suboxone. Like, this is a good thing. This this doesn't mean they're still using. It doesn't mean that they're not really sober. Um, and the police in general are like, yeah, cool. How can I get them in touch with you? You know, which is not what I expected. That's really, really cool. I mean, that's just, that's really wonderful to hear. That's wonderful to know. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, I haven't, I haven't really heard anything like that before. I haven't really heard much of uh, what the police are doing. I just know that sometimes mental health and in when it comes to mental health in any shape or form can be mishandled outside of Absolutely. the... I mean, even in the medical field or outside the medical field when it comes to like law enforcement and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I've experienced it firsthand. Mental health is, yeah. is, is really, really difficult. And it's understandable because it's not that they want to miss they don't want to it's not that they want to do it in the wrong way it's just that it's it's ignorance it's it's not getting the yeah, training yeah. either there's no training for it really or as far as i know um not well, the, no not well the right there, there is there is the, part of and and when i say the police i want to make very clear that i'm talking about the police in my particular community mm -hmm. um and, and in a nearby community and that the chiefs of police are both very um like, excuse me, like in Sanford, which is nearby where I am, the chief of police, all of his officers have training and, and it's called something kind of euphemistic that I don't think, but, but basically they learn tactics of if somebody is altered in their mental status, whether it's through psychiatric reasons or whether it's because they're, you know, on a substance or what have you, it's a different, a different thing than somebody is um robbing a liquor store you know some somebody is sober in the rock liquor store like and, and either way you shouldn't be going around shooting people but but my particular community has been very rigorous in you know through trial and error unfortunately but like 
you, you can't there are training for it and in fact I, I think you may know my or maybe you don't my best friend uh does training in um in philadelphia area she does um trauma-informed policing uh for for similar reasons like mm -hmm. she trains the police throughout the state of pennsylvania on you know what you may be seeing is a six foot two african-american 17 year old who's acting really escalated what you're seeing is a teenager who's experiencing a trauma response and here's ways you can think of him as a human being and not shoot him. Um, and again, because of the particular lens, the police aren't always receptive to that and they call it the hug a thug program. Um, but, but there, but you're absolutely right. There's been huge, a huge need to do that kind of education in law enforcement because it doesn't come standard. Um, and, and as I said, the, the people who go into law enforcement do it with their, their particular baggage and their particular. And there was a big initiative in Maine where the police started doing this program where they were sending everybody to rehab. I don't know. This was maybe, let's see, this is like six years ago, mm -hmm. right? Six or seven years ago. And it was very well intentioned, right? But I, I gave a lecture in Massachusetts kind of describing my own process and saying like imagine if it was anthrax if there was a big anthrax crisis and you called the police like it would be nice if the like if all the police did was decriminalize having anthrax that would be great but we wouldn't expect them to treat the anthrax right or come up with a good treatment plan so so what they were doing was they were sending people to rehab in florida they were abstinence-based rehab. Rehab itself, where you go away for a while, isn't, the evidence is strong against it. So it's not something that's actually, like it's not a good idea. It's just plain old not a good idea. <laughs> the end. And, um, and, and I was, you know, as you might imagine, pretty outspoken about this, kind of in social media yeah. and other places. Yeah, yeah. I know, mm. shock and awe, shock I mean, and awe. I don't believe and, it. And I was like, and, and, and it was kind of funny because everyone's like, oh, that's so nice. The police are treating people with a drug problem. That's like, number one, I'd been getting shit on for treating those same people and bringing them into this environment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I was evicted from my first office where when I went out on my own and became a solo practitioner, I was evicted because it wasn't right for the setting. The setting, which, by the way, has a sports bar on the first floor. Mm -hmm. But, you know. So I'm, I'm trying to tell these people like, hey, you know, big ups to the police for trying to be problem solvers, but really you need to be doing X, Y, and Z. And suddenly I'm the big asshole, right? Suddenly, look, they're just doing the best they can. I'm like, fine, but then why not ask a bitch? Why not ask the person who actually knows how to do this? Like I wasn't sitting there with my hands in my pockets, but then I was in this position of, okay, so I work for the one program in Central Maine. I did at the time yeah. when I was with for nine years but I was an employee. I was an employee at the methadone clinic. So I couldn't just say, come one, come all. And I couldn't do anything for free because you know, this, this is, that's uh, insurance fraud. If, if I do like a hospital could, but I can, like, cause basically it's doing, giving a better deal to an individual than I am to an insurance company. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird thing that if I don't charge at all, I can't. So, I just did this kind of rig job of, um, and it was literally, I was in a snit on Facebook one night because I was so tired of like all this 
Like there is a good way to treat this and no one's doing it. And this incredibly high resource consumption of send everybody to Florida, where by the way, a lot of them were like dropping out. Now they're in Florida. They have no way of getting back. They were in a non-evidence-based treatment facility that has shitty outcomes. And they're still getting all big heroism about it. It was like really annoying. So I, I put out this thing on Facebook of like, okay, listen, if you have a drug problem or you know somebody who does, come to my office, we'll figure something out. You know, and, and, and so I was like, I'll get you in touch. I knew a lot of recovery coaches. I knew people who, who did, who were therapists who would take a sliding scale. And like, so I kind of was mobbed up enough that I thought, well, I can sort of do a little problem solving troubleshooting, just kind of rig it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my thought was I would connect with a few people who knew a few people and at least they would be getting into recovery. Right. And the next day I went to work and I had on a, I had borrowed one of my husband's like scuzzy sweaters. Cause I, it was chillier than I thought. So I threw on this and very clearly said, I mean, it doesn't matter. No one's going to be looking at me. Mm-hmm. And as I was there, Channel 6 showed up because the word had gotten out that I was doing this thing. And, and which, again, was not a, like I wasn't doing it for that. I was just trying to be useful. Like it it sort of never occurred to me that this was going to get me on TV or anything. And then and then that same day, my state representative called to give me a shout out for everything I was doing. And to me, it was just kind of weird because I was like, oh, OK, like. Then I'm in the Bangor Daily, like the Bangor Daily. That's nowhere near me. Like Bangor, as you know, is like three hours from me. Yeah, that's yeah, um, that is not close. But, <laughs> but what was but I had people coming down and what 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 was infuriating is like. I I the goal had not been that I was just going to be some kind of superhero or that I was like I I. I don't see myself that way. I wasn't promoted. Like this was not about promoting myself or making some kind of a name, but I was thinking, and then everyone can pitch in and we'll all do this, but that's not what happened. What happened was people were driving past three hospitals, two and a half hours, one way, so they could come and get affordable evidence-based treatment for their problem. And I was like, okay, so where the hell is everybody else? It's not so great that I'm doing this. It's ridiculous that I'm doing this because I shouldn't have you to. Weren't, you you know? weren't doing it for, for, for showboating, which, it, which is very, very hard not to do, to be honest with you. I find, like, even myself during the last interview that I had, I found myself showboating. I wasn't doing it on purpose, but it, it, it's, it, it happens. And um, you could, I can tell very easily very quickly that that is not you in any way shape or form when it comes to this <laughs> it never occurred to me this was going to happen yeah i was featured in the do journal the national like what what like well and also you know to me this shouldn't be that unusual we should all be doing that like it's not like it, this shouldn't be noteworthy this should be the norm and obviously it's not but but now they've created policies. Have you heard of opioid health homes? No. It's 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 a particular payment structure of you get this particular thing and you provide this package and it's medication assisted treatment and like counseling and some basically what I was doing by a rig job. But in order to really have the resources to do it the way they want it done is prohibitive for anyone who's not a large institution. So it's really frustrating because 
you know, then how the reindeer loved him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, the hospitals that were not welcoming and continue to stigma, stigmatize my patients quite a bit. Um, now suddenly they were like, look at us, we're opioid health homes because we can afford to hire an RN and we can, and I'm just kind of like, oh, okay. Um, and, and good for them. I mean, at least they're doing it, but they're not necessarily doing it respectfully or in the right, you know, I, I don't, no one with a, a health problem should be somebody's cash cow. That's just gross, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I've had people say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm switching my practice to Suboxone. Can you give me pointers? I'm just like, it's not switching. Like, what does that even mean? I mean, I know what it means. It's they're, they're doing it as a side hustle and that's just really repugnant. Um, you know, people are trying to stay alive and you're like, it's just gross. Yep. So anyway, I'm kind of word vomiting on you, but certainly well, that can't be that's, a surprise. That's okay. I do have, uh, we're, we're getting closer to uh, where I'd like the, the interview to end, although I don't want it to end. Um, but I do have a couple of other things that I'd like to, to ask you. So, uh, so I have like uh, two or three left, uh, but they should be pretty quick. So the first, the, the last okay. one is, what would you like to say to your listeners who might be going through uh, addiction? Uh, what can you say to help nudge them to maybe get help or or to realize that they might have a problem? You know, just what would you like to say to somebody that's that's going through maybe uh, the beginning of, of their journey? Um, there's not an amount of use or a particular nature of use that defines whether you have a problem as much as you know that if your life is becoming unmanageable as a result of your use whether that's drugs whether that's porn whether that's food whether that's whatever right if if as a result of some external thing your life is getting out of control it's okay to recognize that it's getting out of control and give yourself permission not to do it alone and not to, you know, you have something that can be life-threatening and can threaten your livelihood as well. Um, for any other problem like that, you would involve a professional. You wouldn't Google it, I hope. If you thought, if you found a lump on you somewhere, you wouldn't just Google it and then try to cut it out or do your own chemo. You wouldn't, right? Um, similarly, you help is probably closer than you think. Um, you, the idea that like the police thought you needed to do, you don't need to go to rehab. It's not necessarily a thing. It's not necessarily indicated. Um, and you don't need to be ready to stop doing whatever you're doing. You need to be ready to try to function better and be safer. It, it's not, there are a lot of schools of thought that are very binary and either you need to be on this team or this team. And it's just like, if you're at a space where you don't like how your life is, then think about the things that are contributing to it and think about how you can um, change it and what kind of help you need. Um, and also that um, although the 12 step model is terrific and has helped a lot of people, you know, 75% of the people in the United States who get sober don't do it in the 12 step model. And that's, that's going to be an unpopular opinion because it's really worked for a lot of people and it does, but, but don't ever let somebody tell you that the way you're staying alive is the wrong way. 
whatever whatever it is that's going to keep you and your family alive or safe well that's awesome answer (laughs) it's really good that's uh i think that i'm hoping that's gonna help some people so before we go is there any plugs you'd like to put out there uh like maybe like a book or someone that has like a ted talk is there any way any other place that people can maybe get some information after maybe being interested in what we've talked about today is there anywhere that you might want to send people if they want to educate themselves some more well, I mean, right now I have, as you know, my business Facebook page, Graceful Recovery with Meredith C. Norris. Um, I have a website that I'm learning how to use. My domain is secondhandparachute.com. Okay. Um, which I named because I desperately wanted Brian to name his last band Secondhand Parachute because I thought it was amazing. Uh, and he didn't. So I was like, well, fine, I'll take it then. Um, but... Um, Let's see, as to, I would say if you're going to be trying to educate yourself through the lens of who a person is, not what substance they were using, like, I I really like the Basketball Diaries quite a bit, like, not the movie with Leonardo, but the, the original diary by Jim Carroll, because it was just a teenager's account of him being a very sensitive and very intelligent person in this kind of chaotic situation and how how he just wound up using heroin and kind of the journey there. Um, I I like storytelling and narrative um, a lot more than I do. Um, But if if you really want a great book that sort of straddles academic and and poetry really is um, Gabor Matei, M-A-T-E, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost. Uh, he has been kind of the godfather of addiction medicine, uh, writing about it in Vancouver. And I've actually spoken at the same talk with him, which was not intimidating at all. And he's just mm-hmm. a beautiful, gentle man and um, has done a lot of really amazing work. Um, and remember, really, that pretty much everybody who started using drugs was probably not doing it to party and was not doing it to get high, but they were, they were trying to feel a different way than they were feeling that day. And usually the way they were feeling was pretty horrible. And that's very important to consider when you're looking at somebody who may not be behaving the way that you would like to see someone behave. Mm. Well, with that, I thank you so much for coming onto my podcast. I appreciate appreciate you having uh, you coming on, and I love how much I grew from your stories today. And I hope to see you again in the future. So thank you so much in real life. I hope yes, very soon. Hopefully, give, give, give my best to everyone. I will. I love you. Take care. Love you too. Bye bye. Thank you everyone for tuning in and growing with me. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, even things you want to educate me on, please email me at roomtogrowwithchad at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you. See you when I see you.